Turn on your Bibles, if you would, to the letter of First John. You can find that on page 1211 of your Pew Bible, 1211, the letter of First John. We will return to Jacob next Sunday morning, as I'll be preaching in the morning. And we'll see that uh, wonderful and I think profound moment when he comes face to face with Esau. But I made a commitment years ago to um, take time out throughout the year to preach the law of God at various times, and especially the Ten Commandments. And I began kind of picking out a commandment to teach this week and was actually drawn to this passage, which summarizes the Ten Commandments and is very much the commandment of the New Testament, the commandment that we are to love one another and that the world will know us by our love for each other. I had you read 1 Corinthians 13 this evening because I think it's a passage that has been almost completely abducted by young married couples. And I love young married couples. Um, really thankful to have performed some marriages recently. But 1 Corinthians 13 has become sort of a wedding passage, and it, and it should be. It's, it's a fantastic wedding passage. But I want to encourage you, maybe even later tonight, or this week, to take 1 Corinthians 13 out again and read it as it was intended by Paul. It is actually a call to the love we have for each other as a church. And when you read it that way, it becomes uh, in some ways sort of disturbing <laughs> because you realize the struggle and the intensity of those words is not about a man and woman in marriage, although it applies, of course, to that. But first and foremost, it's about our relationship with one another. Because we live in a Western society, we live in an individualistic society. And because our society has rejected God, it has made transcendent the romantic relationship. And so we're told and we're trained all our lives in all our Disney movies and all our sitcoms to believe that the real heart of your life, the real meaningful thing that will happen to you is falling in love with another person. And so romance is everything in our culture. That's where you touch God because we've kind of removed him from every other part of our lives. Now, unfortunately, that way of thinking has influenced the church. And we often think in very secular terms about love. We think about it primarily between a man and a woman in marriage. And yet the Bible has far more to say about our love for each other as believers and how we are to act as believers together. So I want to focus on that with you tonight. Let me ask you to stand then. And we're reading 1 John 2, 7 through 11. So a brief reading. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. Let's ask now his blessing on it. 
Father, we do confess to you the blindness, the natural blindness that infects each of our hearts. And we do pray that you would take away that blindness now, that you would open your word to us and reveal ourselves and our world for what they really are. We pray that you would do this, that we might be changed into the image of your son, that the church might be strengthened, that the gospel may go forth, and above all, that Christ would be glorified in the earth, for he is so worthy and so underappreciated. So we pray that through our lives, he might be lifted up for all to see. Bless now our time of meditation, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There has been a difficult church split, a church split in Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey. And John, the last living apostle, is writing his beloved ones to encourage them to stay true to their Christian faith and not be lured into a new false faith. And so the letter of 1 John begins with John reminding them that he saw, he heard, and he touched the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, their faith, the faith of these churches, is not built on the ever-shifting sand of culture or personal spirituality. Rather, they are holding true to a gospel, to the good news, a message heard and received from Christ. We live in an age of heresy, ourselves, very much in the same context. In subtle and not so subtle ways, the Christian faith is always being Americanized or modified in some way. This is the persuasive argument of New York Times columnist Ross Duthat in his book, Bad Religion. He says it this way, quote, America's problem isn't too much religion, as some on the left think, or too little religion, as some on the right think. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a, a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. So it's vitally important to study First John and test, and that's what this letter is all about, testing what is genuine faith. What is genuine faith? What is a real relationship with the God of the Bible look like? And, and what is false? Satan is working overtime in our world to create faiths that look and feel Christian but are not. And sadly, although we also send forth many godly missionaries, the U.S. also, as you probably are aware, is the number one exporter of cults, misinformation, and bad religion to the world. C.S. Lewis once said that brass... Brass, the substance, is more easily mistaken for gold than clay. He meant that evil, dressed up like good, is always more compelling than evil unwashed and out front. And so there is always a threat of false faith and false living. Tonight we're going to look at an essential mark of true faith, an essential mark of those who actually have a relationship with God. The Old Testament and New Testament are profoundly simple and clear on this issue, that those who know God love the brethren. They love the church. They love other Christians. 
We are, of course, commanded to love all people. You'll remember Jesus' famous, incredibly famous parable of the Good Samaritan that's all about someone loving someone they usually didn't love in history and time. So you know Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to love all people in some sense. But the Bible actually focuses a lot more of its time on the love we are to have for each other in the community of faith. And if you think about it for a moment, that makes a lot of sense. How can we um, invite into our community unbelieving people to watch, to see, to hear, or possibly to be converted and become a part of the community? How can we invite them to a place where there is no love? I think increasingly, as you see what's happening in our culture, I think we're all feeling this. Maybe we're not saying it to each other in quite this way, but I know you'll You'll agree with me. It's, it's so important right now, especially right now, for us to be an alternative community to the world. This is going to be the last place where certain beliefs and values and truths are held on to. The only place. And we're going to be hated for it. We already are hated for it. Um, it was interesting to hear even this week someone <laughs> hating our church for this, um, specifically because of our stand on some of these Issues um, that's going to happen more and more and more unless the Lord acts um, in a powerful way. And so it's all the more important that we love each other. If we're getting attacked and our children are being attacked constantly and mine are, I know yours are out there. We need to be able to come here and love each other and think very carefully about how we treat each other here to give this as a place of refuge to one another because the world grows darker with every passing moment. So these are really important matters. Our love for each other is a major part of our witness right now. It's a major part of how we comfort each other and even protect and love each other in a very difficult situation. So I want to explore this passage just briefly with you and and really make three points. And I'm not actually, normally I go right through the text in order. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but just make these three observations, and I hope they'll be, be helpful to you. First, I want you to notice This love for one another is essential. It's essential. Second, that it's very ancient. The command to love one another is an ancient command, very deeply rooted uh, in God and in the past. And lastly, that it is now a command because of what Jesus has done. It's a command that is renewed and revived and is even more urgent today than it was in the time of Moses or David. So let's look at those three things together. First, you notice it's an essential command. Look at 9, 10, and 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Darkness is used by John throughout this letter to describe someone who is fooling themselves, fooling themselves or is blinded by the devil. They're lying to themselves and they're being deceived by forces that are out there. John, along with the other apostles and Jesus, are are saying to us, love is an essential mark of true faith. So someone who says, and I know we've all heard this at one point in our life, someone who says, I am a Christian, but does not exercise love towards the brethren, does not love Christ's church, is not of the true faith. 
Now, I, I want to make a clear exception here. There are times when people have been really hurt in a church and they leave for a while and then they come back. Um, things like that happen. Or you may be ill and not able to regularly attend church. But the Bible does not recognize a category of a person who has a purely individualistic faith. The, the New Testament does not recognize such a thing. All the summaries of our faith have this in, in view. In fact, love, as I'm sure most of you are aware, is part of a trinity of Christian values that we celebrate and talk about every Sunday. Love, hope, and faith, or faith, hope, and love is how we usually say them. And these three things uh, were not just in 1 Corinthians 13, but you find them throughout the Bible. They're in five of Paul's letters. They're in the book of Hebrews and in the book of 1 Peter. What does that tell you? That tells you that the early church knew about these three, put these three together, and used them as a summary of what the Christian life should look like. Faith, hope, love. And so love is not sort of something that you tack on to your personal salvation. Do you see? Love is part of what comes when you are bought by Christ, when you come into relationship with him. When you're united to Christ, you are united to all the other believers in the world. The New Testament teaches us very clearly that before time began, the Father placed you in Jesus Christ with millions of other believers. So your union with each other as believers is more ancient. It's more fundamental to who you are than even your marriage. Your marriage is for, what, 50 years, maybe? Your union with other believers began before time began and will be going on a billion years from now. It's a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a believer. It's, this is essential. That's what we're getting at here. You don't ask Jesus into your heart and then go about your life. Uh, you have an amazing experience maybe where you come to faith and immediately, if you're truly a believer, you're added to the people of God. Somehow, someway, uh, you have to express love for the brethren. It's essential. It's absolutely essential. Now, the apostles, when they taught this, um, Paul, the author of Hebrews, John, they were just in a way repeating, of course, the teachings of Jesus. In fact, John's word here sounds very much like the words of the Lord Jesus right before he was crucified. In John's gospel, John chapter 15, you will remember Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he immediately says, my command is this, that you love one another. Jesus tied these things together. And Paul did the same thing. And, and John, as they wrote to individual congregations, they told them to apply the gospel and that one of the necessary implications of the gospel was love for one another. So, for example, in Philippians, Paul tells the church not to be concerned only with their own lives, but to care about one another. We are not to give in to our natural tendency to be self-absorbed and self-satisfied. There is a kind of contentment that is extremely evil, Paul says, if we don't love one another. And so the apostles opposed the subtle versions and the extreme versions of individualism. Any form of Christianity that does not love Christ's church and Christ's people is not real Christianity. Jesus loves his church. He's identified himself with her. She is his body. And so you cannot love Christ and hate his church. It's just not 
possible. And so here we are called to love one another, and it's essential. Paul even reminds us that when we express our liberty, when we carry out our liberty, what we believe we're free to do as Christians, even then we have to think about love for one another. Galatians 5 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's the alternative. And 1 Corinthians 13, you'll remember, that we read just a few moments ago, it talks about the Corinthians, their amazing gifts, their ability to prophesy, their faith, their tremendous gifted congregation. And Paul says, if you don't love people while you're doing it, if you don't love Christ's church, it's nothing. It's actually painful and harmful. If you want to understand, uh, maybe this has happened to you recently, you, you look around and you, uh, you notice certain key sort of popular preachers and they fall and then it comes out that... There's this whole train of bodies behind them, you know, people they've hurt. Um, That's what this is about, right? They didn't practice love. They hurt and dominated everyone around them. They were strong men, so they could get lots of people to follow them, but they were without love, and that's not the Christianity that is taught here. This is a letter about heresy and about what true Christianity really looks like. John and the other disciples called darkness... Any tradition or form of Christianity that is not expressed in and faithful to the command to love. Christianity cannot be boiled down to me, my Bible, and Jesus. This is an American heresy that Christianity can be a private religion. It cannot be. John says that is darkness. So this is the darkness, and this means that loving one another is essential. Second, notice with me that it is ancient. It's a very ancient command here. John wants to assure the congregations of Asia Minor that this is not new teaching. This is not heresy. This is an age-old command, and this has always been a sign of orthodoxy for the church, something that has been believed and followed for centuries in multiple cultures. So see verse 7. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now people aren't sure what that means. Commentators disagree on, is he talking about when he says from the beginning you had this command, does he mean when you first came to Jesus, the very first time we told you about Jesus, we told you about loving others, about the church. That's almost certainly what's happening here. Um, And what I think almost everyone agrees is in view here. But it goes back even farther than that. Now, that's before we go back further. That is something striking in and of itself, isn't it? That when they heard about salvation through Jesus, at the same time, in the beginning, they were also told about loving the church. You see how they weren't two separate things? You didn't come to Christ, become a Christian for a while, and then somebody tacked on sort of at the end this idea of, belonging to the church and loving other believers and so forth. No, John's saying right from the beginning, I taught you, the apostles taught you, this is part of the plan. God is calling out a people for himself, not just individuals, but a people. But it's rooted in, and John may have had this in view, it's rooted in much um, deeper, uh, more ancient realities than that, isn't it? The command to Love one's neighbor as oneself comes out of the Pentateuch, the first five books 
of the Bible. You remember that famous scene where Jesus is asked a question. And he says, he summarizes the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. What a lot of, I think, modern Christians don't realize is that what Jesus was doing there uh, was quoting two different places in the Pentateuch. He wasn't making up a new religion. He understood that that had always been God's plan uh, for God's people to love one another. That was something they were commanded to do from the beginning. As we've been studying Isaiah, have you noticed uh, again and again how Isaiah condemns Israel for their lack of love for each other? They cheat one another uh, as fellow Jews. They do all kinds of things against one another. And Isaiah is just brutal and direct as the covenant prosecutor about those issues. So this is not something in that sense that's brand new. It has been there from the beginning. But it goes back even farther. It goes even back farther than the Old Testament because the command to love each other goes back into the Trinity itself, our God. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is three persons, one God. And those three persons existed in love, perfect love with one another before time began. And so when they created and made us, they made us for love. And understand what I'm saying? They, I'm talking about persons, one true God, no heresy here. Um, but love was something you see God was in himself before he made us. And Christianity is the only religion in the world like this that, said, that says that God isn't just loving, but that God is love, and he is love apart from us. Every other faith has only one God with only one person. And so that one God with one person cannot love, see, until he makes something to love. There's no two things to love. But within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is perfect love and harmony, which means they did not make us because they were lacking something. God was not lonely and decided to make people so that he wouldn't be alone. That's a very charming and, and kind of makes us feel a little proud, maybe, to feel like we're the answer to his longing. But that's a, that is also heresy. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were pouring love into one another perfectly before time began. And so the command to love, here's what I'm getting at. The command to love goes back through your Bible, back through your Old Testament, and finds its root it's, it's seed point in the Trinity, in perfect love and harmony. And then God built us to reflect that. Marriage is one, one beautiful expression. The church is an even greater and older and more lasting expression of this unity, of love between partners. And so God has rooted this all in these ancient Reality, realities. Now, again, only our faith has that. If you believe in atheistic evolution or naturalism, if you believe there's not a God, that we just evolved from monkeys, that all this started by an accident, is going nowhere, there's no supernatural, as so many people in our society either believe that or live as if that's true. If you believe that, you have to give up on the idea of love. Love is our ancient idea because it's God's ancient idea. It comes from him. In secular evolution, evolution without God, uh, love is just a biochemical response you have in your brain that evolution designed you for so that you would get married and have more children so the species wouldn't be wiped out. 
theoretically, in a thousand years, evolution could rewire you so that you never feel love anymore and only hate. If that was what was best for the species, that's what it will do. Love cannot exist. So you see the irony? Our society chirps constantly about love. Love is love. Love is love. Love is love. They talk about it constantly. And yet their belief system does not allow for love. It cannot exist. They say that love and hope is a biochemical response created in the brain by evolution. That's not what we mean by love. We mean something transcendent, right? We mean something beautiful. That's why we have beautiful weddings and we do all those kinds of things. And we'll keep doing those things as a society walks away from them, walks away from marriage more and more. We'll keep doing them because we have a reason to believe in this. Why? Because it's rooted back all the way in the Trinity. Love is, is ours in a really unique way that doesn't belong to the world. They can't account for it. They can't explain it. It's actually a contradiction of their values and their beliefs. But for us, it is an ancient, ancient truth rooted in the mystery of the Trinity, expressed in the Old Testament people of God, and now expressed in us, the New Testament people of God. So you see it's essential. You see how ancient it is. Lastly, though, notice that John says something has happened that makes it, may we say it this way, a little more urgent than ever before. And it's found in verse 8. This love is true in him, in Christ, and it's true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I love that verse. Do you understand what it's saying? Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has begun the clock, if you will. He started the end times. That's why the New Testament speaks always of our period of history as the last days, the end time. There's no more major events left to happen. His death, his resurrection, he accomplished all that he needed to accomplish. We are living in the last age of the world, the last age. And we're living in the light of what Christ has done. There is, if I can put it this way, there is a light shining from eternity, casting shadows into our world in which we're living now. And when we love each other, we're seeing, do you see what's happening there? We're seeing a picture, a little picture of what the future is. The future is not you and me living in our homes the way we do now separated from each other six days a week and then one day a week we get together and we try to you know talk to each other and you only get to talk for five minutes because i gotta go to lunch and you never really find out what happened with that what was the end of that story i never heard you know that's not the future the future eternity is perfect love and harmony between each other in a kingdom of light with god and something of that reality, and understand that reality is more real than this one. This is the land of shadows. What you're experiencing right now, this is temporary. This is passing away very rapidly. The eternal, though, has broken into our world and is shining into our world, casting shadows and light into it. Now come back to verse 8. This love is true and in him and in you because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Christ has won the victory. And so John is saying, here's what he's saying, something massive has changed the direction of the world. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is crucified, there are maybe thousands at most 
true followers of God in the whole world, and they're largely located in just one spot on the map. There are now over a billion people. We don't know how many people, many billions who profess Christ. Why? How has that changed? Because the light's shining. Because Christ did something definitively in his crucifixion. You remember when Pastor Trescar preached through the book of Revelation. He mentioned that moment where, where Satan is cast out of heaven because Christ has died for his people and Satan has no more room, no more place, no more authority to accuse the people of God. On one level, when we look at our world, we just see this history of man sinning, and it just seems like it's gone on for about 7,000 years, and we're, you know, we're kind of late in the story, but that's it. You really shouldn't look at history that way. 2,000 years ago, everything changed. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. It doesn't mean there's not horrible things going on in our world. There is. There's going to be no remedy for this world except the return of Christ. However, things have changed. That's John's point. The light is already shining. And so John says it's more urgent than ever that we love one another. Because we are closer, brothers and sisters, right now to that eternity of perfect love with each other than David and Moses were. David and Moses were, were in a different age. They were hundreds of years before Christ. These things were very far away still for them. But for us, that light is already shining. The end has begun. This is a demonstration um, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And what he means by that is the general resurrection of all people to meet God has already started in the person of Jesus. He is the first to go, and then all of us after him. So something has begun, and because of that, because of that, the call to love one another is urgent. You see, it's essential, it's ancient, and it's urgent. Now, how do you do it? Let's conclude with this. How do we do it? We have some sense of what's being taught here. Well, I think uh, the key is in that last uh, verse that I read, verse 8. We, we learn to love each other by thinking deeply about the gospel. I know that sounds counterintuitive, you think, well, the way to love people is, you know, pull up uh, my pants and my shirt sleeves, right? Roll, roll them up, get out there, and just start loving people. And, and don't get me wrong, sometimes that's exactly what we need to do, is just get involved and, and love others. But the way you really deepen your love for people in the church is by thinking very deeply about the gospel. The people who are most affected by the gospel are going to be the people who love best in the church. When you become really aware of how God has loved you and saved you through his son, when you become aware of the massive sacrifice that took place on Calvary for you, it changes you and causes you to want to love others. It makes you capable of being hurt and bouncing back. Some of us don't have that. Some of us need to learn that. You know, we get hurt in a church, and then we just go to the next one. Maybe you have friends like that. You know, people have done that. The reason that person does that is they have not deeply understood the gospel. Because what, is, what do Jesus' friends do to him right before he goes to the cross? They hurt him deeply, tragically. They betray him. What does he do on the cross? He's absolutely faithful to them. People who've thought deeply about the gospel and the spirit has taken the gospel and, and pressed it upon their hearts, they're going to be the best at loving others in the church. 
So if you're thinking to yourself, okay, where do I get the strength then to love people in the church? Because they can be judgmental, they can be rude, they can be all these different things. Where do I find that strength? You find it from the consolation, the joy, and the wonder of the gospel. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any, I'm going to use the old word here, consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the love that dwells within the Trinity, within you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have called us to express and to live in that love, and we pray for grace and strength to do so. We pray, Father, especially tonight, that you would help us to understand the gospel more deeply not to just acknowledge it and then place it on a shelf, but to think and pray over it. And then by your Holy Spirit, take that message, apply it to our hearts so that we might love you and one another as you command. Father, how thankful we are that when you give a command like this, you always give with the command help and strength to your people. And so now we turn ourselves to this table, our communion table, And we know that here is a place spread for us to help us in our journey, to strengthen our love for one another, and to encourage us in our faith. Please do those things in us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.